I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Love Letters is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. One moonlit night in 2015, Mia Dalglish and June Kiribayashi came this close to breaking up. We'd gotten in a fight and June was like, well, I guess, you know, I guess this is over. And I was like, "Uh, yeah, I guess it's over. And he said, well, I have your parking pass, your guest parking pass. And I'm going to bring it back. And I was like, you don't have to. It's $5. He's like, no, no, no. I'm going to bring it back because you need it. And I was like, okay. And he's like, and I made you these <laughs> snacks you really like. And I'm bringing those too. It's quite, quite, quite an ending. <laughs> and he's like, I'm going to drop them off and then go back to Connecticut. From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is a special bonus episode of Love Letters in collaboration with and presented by the Boston Pops. I'm Meredith Goldstein. You might know from past episodes that I was raised by musicians. In an earlier episode, my dad talked about meeting my mom at Juilliard, about how they made beautiful music together, literally. In their actual relationship, not so much. My dad once told me he was a bassoon player who didn't have much interest in playing in an orchestra. And I was like, what was the plan? Were you going to take the classical bassoon on a big solo tour? It made me wonder whether some people who long to be soloists have a hard time playing with others. Today we're going to hear a story about two creative people, Mia and June, who use their art to be better at love. But first, I want to dwell on these creative metaphors we use when talking about relationships. Why we say things like, we make beautiful music together. Is it true that a good creative partner calls on the same skills you need to be a good romantic partner? I put this question to Keith Lockhart, conductor of the Boston Pops. What is the psychology of sort of being good at ensemble and par- and partnership? Usually people who go into instruments that we think of as automatically being orchestral instruments are from the beginning thinking, well, this is an ensemble career track that I'm on. But the, the mentality is is very interesting, actually. Every one of us is is trained to be the best possible instrumental as we can be and and trained to think of that instrument as our means of artistic and personal emotional expression. And then all of a sudden it dawns on us that for the vast majority of us, 
we're going to be a cog in a wheel. We're going to be part of a greater thing. Now, that's spectacular in its own way because an orchestra at full bore can create things that none of us can create individually. But uh, some people do chafe under that. Some people want to be the individual voice that is heard by the audience at the time. Is it different, like the kind of partnership you feel when you're like in a chamber ensemble versus the symphony, right? When there's like four people versus two two people. You know, I always think about um, famous music duos, right? And how that works, because all of my pop favorites, like Hall and Oates or like Wham, I'm like, oh, well, somebody <laughs> seems to sort of, I, I know, don't laugh at me. Some of them, <laughs> some of them say, like one. She's a Hall and Oates fan, huh? <laughs> she, she is a Hall and Oates fan, very much so. But like, I think people might say that sometimes there's like this dominant musical personality of, of the duos and sort of, so how does it work to sort of collaborate when the size of, of that collaboration might be very different and more intimate in some cases. Well, it certainly does change the dynamic. And part of that is the fault of the person inhabiting my job, the conductor. It's funny, they're really in orchestras through most of the 18th century, there, there really weren't conductors. Conductors grew up as, shall I say it, a necessary evil. Uh, because as concert halls grew and orchestras grew and composers started to write for bigger and bigger forces, it became obvious that people couldn't just react to each other to play together. Because all of a sudden, when you're seated 75 feet away from the person you're trying to play with, there's, there's sound lag and you can't hear that individual voice. How does learning to play in an ensemble or working with another musician make a person better at working with another person in real life? Or does it? Like, are there, are there lessons in performance and rehearsal that can be applied to actual partnership? I think there are, and I think that's a very good kind of interesting chicken and egg sort of question, because I'm not sure that those, uh, those lessons are usually applied from music back into our personal lives, or more the other way around. And you find that people who are great collaborators end up being great collaborators with an instrument in their hand as well. When you think about it, the lessons about making beautiful music together, about combining your voices, really have to do with the same kind of things that we tell each other uh, make for good people, for good romantic partners, for good collaborators and, and colleagues. Those are the ability to listen to the other person, to understand when you need to lead and when you need to follow, to have your, your ears, but not just your ears, all your senses attuned to what that person is doing and to know that that person is taking the same amount of care in their reactions to you. If you can really understand that there is a difference between just hearing what it is that you're supposed to be playing with and actually understanding how to fit with that. Maybe that has applicability outside of music. Boston Pops conductor, Keith Lockhart. introduce you now to Mia Doglish and June Kurbayashi. They're a Boston-based couple who run an artistic and movement consulting company called Hybrid Motion. The name suits their partnership. Mia does tango. June does modern dance and movement. They're always in motion, but in different ways. What they share, in addition to marriage, is an unconventional path to their dance careers. 
and a deep understanding of how important it is in their creative and romantic partnerships to learn each other's language. Mia comes from Bloomington, Indiana. Her father is a composer and musician who plays the hammer dulcimer. Her mother is a retired doctor who specialized in women's health. My mom would go to the office every day and, you know, just dealing with some really serious stuff. And she'd come home and my dad would be in his studio, like practicing chicken sounds for an operetta about chickens that he was writing. Growing up, Mia's interests fell more on the creative side. She played cello. She sang with her dad and in various choirs. She studied photography in college. One thing she didn't do much? Dance. And then on this one day, a friend drags her to an Argentine tango club at Indiana University, where Mia is in her final year. For months, Mia had made excuses to this friend for why she couldn't go to the tango club. Eventually, she runs out of excuses. I was like, I'll go to her stupid club and I'll hate it. And then, because I can't be a dancer, like especially tango, come on, like me, no. I mean, honestly, it was like falling in love. In the first 10 minutes, I was like, well, I want to see this thing for the rest of my life. Like, that's it. I really do think about tango as one of the main relationships in my life. I fell in love and we had the honeymoon period and then, you know, we went through some hard times and things weren't quite as exciting as they used to be and, you know, but we've worked it out now and, like, we found, you know, a good equal rhythm together. Through the dance, you know, I just see the person I want to be. I want to be someone who is comfortable with all ranges of emotions that I have, that someone who can be vulnerable with another person, someone who can be clear with another person. These are all things, dynamics that you deal with in this dance. June Kurabayashi also grew up in a Midwestern college town in Lawrence, Kansas. Like Mia, a career in dance was hardly in his sights. He was a martial artist and an athlete who swam competitively. June did, though, have some exposure to ballet as a kid. My mother was a huge fan of, like, Nureyev and Baryshnikov, and so we grew up always watching those ballets, you know? Like, we only had one TV growing up. I remember specifically her picking up my leg while we were watching ballet and goes, you know, oh, I bet you'd be a really great dancer, but the, with these short legs, you're never going to become a dancer. <laughs> She became my biggest fan, and, uh, you know, wherever we were, we were at that was somewhat close, she would fly out and watch her shows. As he got older, June gets into capoeira, an Afro-Brazilian martial art, and then into breakdancing. His moves get him noticed, which leads to an invitation to study dance at the University of Kansas. This then leads to an audition with Palabolus, the acclaimed dance company based in Connecticut. So I got on a plane, went out there, and did a week-long audition. And I literally just thought I was going to go get cut on the first day and be able to go see New York. And uh, every day I was waiting to get cut, and I just didn't. June gets the coveted Palabolus gig. He stays with the company for 12 years, touring internationally as a dancer and dance captain for nine years before becoming an artistic associate. 
Mia, meanwhile, decides to go all in on learning the tango. She studies under a dancer named Fernanda Guy, training with her in cities across the country while Fernanda is on tour. Eventually, Fernanda settles in Boston. Mia moves there, too, continuing to study with Fernanda and helping her open a dance school. At one point, Mia goes to see a Palabalus performance in Boston. I was just, like, mesmerized. I mean, honestly, it almost felt the way I felt when I met Tango. I was like, oh, this is, like, this is something else. Like, this is humans at their best, you know, the creativity and the physicality. June isn't performing at this show, but he is in the audience. When Mia gets home, she does some Googling and discovers that Palopolis offers an intensive training program in the summer. It's still a year away, but she signs up immediately. When the summer program rolls around, in the summer of 2015, June offers to drive participants to an open gym so he can teach them flips, handsprings, and other tricks. Mia gets in the car. Mia and June hit it off. Unlike most other participants, Mia's closer to June's age. They're chatting a bit in the car. He shows her a few things at the gym. Mia decides she wants to do another week of the program, but she needs housing. June says, well, I've got some people staying in my house, but I've got an extra bedroom if you'd be interested. She tells him yes, as long as he has good internet, because she has some remote work to do for a photo gallery back in Indiana. I said, yes, I have like 100, you know, MPS, like uh, megabytes per second, like download speed. And I kind of went on for probably like at least a minute, minute and a half thinking I was impressing her. He was giving me like a lot of numbers and download speeds and things that meant nothing to me, but I think was supposed to be very impressive. She was just really witty and, and charming, so... I started messaging her uh, the weekend before she was supposed to stay, and I asked her, like, if she wanted anything from the grocery store. You know, what foods I need, and what room did I want to stay in, and, you know, I was just like, whatever, I don't care. Like, I appreciate having a space, and but I was like, well, what, what an attentive gentleman. This connection building between them, it's unexpected and not what either of them is looking for. Mia is coming out of a serious relationship. June is coming off a divorce. But this spark, it's undeniable. They make each other laugh. They enjoy each other's company. And thus begins an awkward, confusing, exhilarating two-month dance between them. Is this real? Are we a thing? Is this actually happening? It all comes to a head one September night under a super blood moon, a night when the whole thing nearly falls apart. We'll be right back.
okay, we're back. So this two-month period of figuring out what they are is hard on Mia and June. One of us would be like, no, 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 we can't do this. And then the other person would be like, okay, you know, and then a week later that would switch, you know, it'd be the other person. And so it was about two months of us just being like back and forth. And it was just really painful, not because either of us were trying to be, it was just, we really felt a pull for something that at the time we didn't think we were ready for. Around this time, June is driving back and forth to Quebec, where he's teaching at a circus school. So I would call her and just talk to her. And but the rest of the time I was in Canada, I just couldn't talk to her because it was going to be long distance. And I, I felt this like emptiness start to kind of emerge. And and I didn't really real. I mean, us men, we're slow. We are just slow. And I didn't really realize that until maybe four times in that I was like, I'm compelled to want to speak to her regardless of the roaming fees. And, you know, I'm a freelance artist at this point. Like, money is important. Money's tight. That's like a vow. I want to speak to you regardless of the roaming fees. I'm so into that. (laughs) (laughs) On the night of the blood moon, they have this fight. June tells Mia... He's coming to drop off the parking pass and her favorite snacks, which, by the way, are Hershey's Kisses melted on pretzels with an M&M on top. And then he's going to turn right back around and drive home to Connecticut. For good. But there was just like this huge moon that fit like perfectly in my window. and, And I was just kind of you know, watching watching it, looking at it, thinking and waiting for him to come. And he came and he was like, here's your parking pass. And I was like, thanks. You know, and I think we said a couple of snarky things to each other. And then he was like, well, I'm going. And I was like, all right, go. Like, leave forever. And I like slumped into my car seat and closed the door and started just to kind of like, look at my phone, and then all of a sudden I hear this, like, knocking at my window. I, like, walked out and I knocked on the car window and, like, scared the shit out of him. And I was like, well, come inside. Like, let's, let's talk. Let's just have a conversation. This, this is no way to leave things. We just sit there and kind of talk it out for a little bit and then look at the blood moon and we're still talking and I just kind of look at her and say, fuck it, and we just start making out. And that was it. And it was just such an interesting feeling because we'd gone from just like two months of total tumultuousness to just kind of this like euphoria of like we're together we're we're gonna do this like it it just felt really really right and that's something that has just really continued for us you know that when we take a step towards each other there's something so natural and organic about it you just have to put yourself out there and I think both of us felt that it, it was just too strong to ignore 
eventually moves to Boston to be with Mia. They get engaged in 2018 and married in 2019. We were going to wait to get married, and my 99-year-old grandfather said, I want to dance at your wedding. Get a move on. (laughs) One thing Mia and June reflect on is that, unlike many other couples who share a creative pursuit, they fell in love offstage. They didn't fall in love as dancers. I've seen a lot of people that get together because of who they are as dancers, but not because of who they are as people. So as dancers, they kind of fall in love. But as people, you know, it's like they'd never be together if it weren't for for the dance. I think what's been interesting with, with June and I is that while I met him through dance, I have never... I've seen him perform, but I've never, you know, I think a lot of his past relationships, people would see him perform in these big venues and really kind of fall in love with his stage persona. I mean, him as well, but like first you see this person on stage and you're like, wow. Early on, they felt this pressure, like maybe we should be dance partners too. June toyed with learning the tango and dancing with Mia. But then they realized, actually, we're better off as we are. It's okay if our work is different. Maybe we can support each other more effectively this way. Dabbling a little bit with tango, I thought, wow, this this rabbit hole goes deep. It's going to take me a while. And I'm going to have to give up my passions in order to do it. Is that the right thing to do? Is that the smart thing to do? We didn't absolutely have to be fully involved in each other's lives, specifically in that way. And I think that our company was a way to kind of marry those two passions and use each other's strengths to kind of still have that connection, though not fully like 100% in her world and 100% in mine. We'd have kind of like a hybrid world. June and Mia do collaborate on projects, A few years ago, they choreographed a piece for a composition Mia's father had written. They've also collaborated on a special piece for a 2021 Valentine's Day live stream show by the Boston Pops called Boston Pops in Love. The piece imagines a masked first date in a pandemic, with tango music as the backdrop, naturally. The push-pull of dancing with a partner turns out to be a good metaphor for how June and Mia think about their romantic relationship. A lot of tango is about taking two energies and actually putting them in slight opposition to each other. The pressure that they create by going against each other is what allows them to have a strong enough connection to move together forward or backwards. If one person is trying to lean in more and the other person is falling away, then you can't move together. If you're both leaning on each other too much, you get tired. You know, it's like you literally physically get tired. So it's really about finding this very amazing, like delicate but strong place where you have your own balance, but you're sharing that alignment with another person. You have to kind of fall back in love every day. And you don't start at zero every day. But 
you know, you have to put in the effort, not just for yourself, but for the other person. I feel stronger with Mia than I do independently, even though I feel like I'm a very, very, like, independent person. Part of almost what we've realized is, you know, if we're in a moment of tension, it really helps for us just to, like, hold hands or hug each other or just somehow be touching each other. Even if the last thing I want to do is hold your hand right now because we're super pissed at each other, it's kind of this agreement that we have of like, all right, we're going to try and at least like just sit down next to each other and like, you know, I'll put my hand on your leg or, or something like that. Sometimes when you touch someone, it takes away all of the the filters we can give through language or how we present ourselves or, you know, angry or defensive or whatever. It's just, it's, I don't know, there's something so immediate and connective about that. And I think it's what scares people about the dance. Thank you so much for telling us your wonderful dance story of dance and love oh thank you so much it's such a pleasure to to get to talk with you about this it's total joy thank you so much for having us appreciate it love letters is a production of the boston globe and prx Today's episode was produced by Scott Hellman. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Devin Smith and Jenna Serbo do our audience engagement. Love Letters illustrations by Ashanti Davis. Check them out on the Love Letters Instagram. Special thanks to Brian McGorry and Linda Henry. Our music is from APM, and today, the Boston Pops. For the next season of Love Letters, we'll be featuring stories of new beginnings and fresh starts in love and relationships. Have a story you're willing to share? Email the team at loveletters at boston.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We're online at loveletters.show. At some point during that break, I did the strip dance. The first time was, I think, with her mother. I just tore my pants off and I kind of winked at her. And she patted my butt. She goes, oh, that's nice. (laughs) And that was like... You know, she was just she already knew I was kind of a goofball. You you like fully magic mic'd your your mother in law. Oh yeah. She thought it was hilarious. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening.